Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna, and with me for the intro today is my colleague Alyssa I. Smith. Hey, Sean. My former recultured podcast co-host. Yay, we're reunited. <laughs> <laughs> so we're switching up the format today. Alyssa is going to take on hosting duties, and I will use the time to do some last-minute Christmas shopping. <laughs> That's right. The gift of time is my gift to you this year. It's what I've always wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so Alyssa is going to cover some of 2022's big culture news, specifically books. So get out your pencils and take notes, because she has some really good recommendations. Hello, Deep Dive listeners. I'm Alyssa I. Smith, and I'm the culture editor at the Japan Times. With me today is our culture critic, Tu Hongha, and it's her first time on the show. Welcome, Tu. Hey, it's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Now, before we get started, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Tu Hongha. Everyone just calls me Tu. I'm a culture critic at the Japan Times. I write mostly about books and art. So, too, you and I are big readers, so a lot of our conversations revolve around books. Let's start this conversation with one of my favorite questions. Have you read any good Japanese books lately? Well, one author that always makes me think is Sayaka Murata, and she has a new collection out in Japanese called Faith. And I read the title story, which is available in English earlier this year. And it's very characteristic of her, which means that it starts out very familiar, ladies chatting, uh, la la la, it's real. And then by the end, there's like screaming and cults and like blood everywhere. Um, classic and, Murata. Yeah, classic. But yeah, I'm, you know, she's just a very exciting author and I'm really excited to see what she does next. And um, I also read Yoko Tawada's Scattered All Over the Earth, which just came out in English this year. It's the first in a trilogy. She's a speculative writer, and this had a very interesting conceit, which is that it's a world in which, I'm not giving anything away, I think, a world in which Japan has sort of ceased to exist as a country. Mm -hmm. um, and it's Because about, there's some sort of apocalypse. Yeah, it's like sort of an unnamed catastrophe, at mm -hmm. least, you know, so far in the series. And it's about being a refugee, but also about being a cultural refugee. It had some really interesting themes, and despite all the <laughs> stuff I just said, it's actually quite fun and pretty light. So that was a nice read. And um, just recently, Haruki Murakami had a new book of essays out. And he um, wrote a review for us. Mm. <laughs> he had some uh, good things and some um, not so good things to say about the book. Yeah, I mean, Murakami is just continues to perplex me. Um, you know, he's so massive. He has, for someone who's considered a, a literary author, he has, you know, sales numbers that I think are kind of unprecedented in that sphere as opposed to a genre author. And, you know, he's sort of in some ways the face of contemporary Japanese literature to global readers. He's extremely prolific. He is still going strong. And so I think a lot of people were really excited to read this book. Novelist as a Vocation is a book of essays about just that. I mean, how did he really make a career from being a person who writes novels? You know, it's one thing to be a writer. It's one thing to write a novel one time, um, but he has obviously made a profession of it. And so you would think that he <laughs> was commissioned to write a book about this topic and that he would maybe have some stuff to say. <laughs> yeah. One thing that stood out to me in your review was how frustratingly unclear he is on what it actually takes to become professional novelist. <laughs> you also talk a lot about how he comes across as quite humble and surprised by his success. Yeah. I mean, 
So a lot of the writing is very vague and he equivocates a lot. It's sort of a lot of like, um, you know, well, I don't know, who am I? Like, And another thing that he does is he doubts himself a lot and he doesn't really show a lot of confidence and he undermines himself quite a lot. But to the point that by the end, you know, along with this writing style, the reader is also wondering why they have paid money to (laughs) read a book of writing advice from Haruki Murakami. So um, how about you? What have you read this year that uh, piqued your interest? Well, as for books that were published before this year, I got into Yoko Ogawa. I read Mm. a few of her books. One of the books that stood out to me was Revenge, which is a collection of stories that are connected in very subtle ways. So you have to read carefully to pick up on those details. Mm. She wrote Memory Police, right? That's right. That one I read at the beginning of the pandemic, which was not a great time to be reading it, actually. <laughs> because I think I also read it at that time. Yeah. And the character's world is getting small and you're starting to doubt your reality. It was a little, a little too relevant, I think. Right. Yeah. I felt the world closing in. Yeah. Everything was getting small and tight and I was losing. Stuck inside a room. <laughs> With no one to talk to. <laughs> right. So that the premise of this novel is that the people on this island are, they slowly lose concepts and memories of those concepts. Mm-hmm. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. So um, the concept of birds and the memories of birds slowly disappears and fades. So yeah, the world just sort of became more limited because... Well, also the people who are able to remember those things disappear, right? right? Taken away. Right. That was dark. So I'm glad to hear that other of her books are not as dark. I mean, I like the darkness, actually. It was devastating. I was, I think I was crying by the end. I don't know. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I did not have that reaction. I was relieved to be done with the book. <laughs> but a book that was released this year that I really enjoyed was Miko Kawakami's All the Lovers in the Night. Mm. It's the third of her novels to be translated into English. What were the first two were? The first was Breast and Eggs. Mm. And then um, last year, Heaven came out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And actually, Heaven was shortlisted for an international Booker Prize this year. It seems that Japanese female writers are having kind of a moment right now. What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. Sachiko Kashiwaba's Temple Alley Summer, it won the Bachelder Award, which is a prize for the most outstanding children's book originally published outside the United States. So there's a lot of interest coming from abroad in Japanese literature. But also here, domestically, female Japanese writers seem to be doing really well. The Naoki Prize went to Misumi Kubo's collection of short stories. And the runner-ups for that prize consisted of four women and one man. Mm. Then there's the Aktagawa Prize and... You know, these Japanese literary prizes, they go back nine decades, but it's the first time this year that all five nominees for the Akutagawa were women. And the winner was Junko Takase, who wrote Oishi Gohan ga Taberare Masu Yoni, which you reviewed. Yeah,それでは高瀬さん、今のお気持ちから so do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so we're kind of roughly translating this title to I wish to be able to eat delicious food. Um, My mood all the time, every day. And from the title, you would think that it, it sounds like a, a book that is going to celebrate food culture and be, you know, 
a fun appetizing book. <laughs> However, <laughs> that is not the case. You know, it's a simply written book and it seems like it's going to be about familiar office drama, kind of an office, maybe an office romance, unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, but it ends up being a commentary about a pretty dark um, commentary, I think, about feminism um, and also about food, um, sort of really, I don't want to say satirizes, but kind of takes issue with the way that we glorify like foodie culture. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the book, you sort of don't want to eat things that are (laughs) good, (laughs) kind of just want to eat like instant ramen. (laughs) The headline that we went with for that review was... um, it's a feminist's nightmare. Yes. I felt horrible by the end. <laughs> in a good way? <laughs> in a good way. Okay. Well, um, it's not out in English yet. I think there are no plans for it to be translated yet. And I haven't heard anything, no. Right. But I'm still looking forward to reading it sometime soon, hopefully. Anime seems to be driving a lot of conversation overseas when it comes to Japanese culture. I'll be honest, I don't follow anime much myself, but even I've heard of Spy Family. And both One Piece Film Red and Dragon Ball did well at the box office overseas. But Hollywood's affinity for Japanese culture doesn't stop there. There were a lot of big-budget adaptations based on books set in Japan this year, most notably Pachinko and Tokyo Vice. So too, did you watch Tokyo Vice? (laughs) I did watch uh, the first few episodes of Tokyo Vice, yeah, and I've I've actually read the book. You used to be a crime reporter in Japan. Why? You think because you're a foreigner, the roads are different? You like busting my balls, huh? <laughs> it is a great joy of my life. Yeah, the show, which was produced by HBO and shown here in Wow Wow, was inspired by a memoir from Tokyo-based journalist Jake Adelstein that was quite popular when it came out in 2009. Yeah, I thought the adaptation was pretty compelling. I mean, the production quality is really high. It's very sort of beautifully shot, um, very cinematic. I think the acting is pretty good. It's pretty cool as a journalist to see this kind of 90s newsroom, you know, before the web, and they're literally like printing everything out and doing all their copy edits by hand. And it's very dramatic um, and, you know, calling each other on the phone and stuff. (laughs) And like literally just like following each other, like just standing outside of the police precinct, like waiting around. And uh, yeah, so that's that's quite cool because obviously I didn't grow up in Japan and was not also was not a journalist anywhere in the 90s. <laughs> so that was quite cool. Um, I thought Ensel Elgord's Japanese was very impressive. The production does a pretty good job, I think, of kind of going for it on the Japanese. Um, it's probably half and half English and Japanese. For a production like this, they would normally just make up an excuse and have it all be in English, which would be completely unrealistic. Mm -hmm. It's still a little unrealistic how many people speak English (laughs) um, in 90s Tokyo, but I still feel like the effort was there. I appreciate that as a, as you know, someone who's consumed content about Japan in both languages. Um, Ken Watanabe can do no wrong. (laughs) It's just his frown should get Oscars, but yeah, actually it's also fun. I mean, it's very melodramatic sometimes, but um, it's quite cool to see 90s Tokyo. It's kind of funny that not that much has changed, actually, uh, <laughs> except that like the suits are a bit too baggy and <laughs> no one has a smartphone. But like the train looks exactly the same. The apartments look exactly the same. Um, Did you recognize a lot of the locations? <laughs> I recognized him running for the last train. <laughs> <laughs> we can all relate to that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. You know, the show can be a little over the top, but um, it's quite juicy. So I think it's worth checking out if you're curious. But you mentioned Pachinko, right? So I know that was a huge book a couple of years ago, but I haven't seen, I actually haven't seen anything about the show. What did you think? I read Pachinko this year as one of my book club books, and it felt really well-researched to me and written by someone who actually spent time living in Japan. The show it's based on came out on Apple TV+, and I really like that it highlights a part of Japanese history that isn't talked about or written about that often, focusing on the experiences and difficulties of immigrant communities as they try to integrate into society here and build a new home for their families after uprooting their lives. What was it about? Well, the story, which was written by Min Jin Lee, follows multiple generations of Korean immigrants in Japan. And a lot of the story is about the struggles that they faced in Japanese society. Um, There was a lot of racism towards them, even though they had learned the Japanese language. As for the show, I felt like there were really great performances by the actresses who played one of the main characters, Sunja. Um, I completely agree with what you said earlier about TV shows coming out that have a Western audience in mind, and they're becoming more multilingual. They're not entirely shot in English. And one thing that I really liked about Pachinko, the show, is it portrayed blended conversations within multilingual households. So a lot of the show was in Korean and Japanese, and they had subtitles in English, and the colors of the subtitles would change depending on the language. And I'd never seen that before, and I really appreciated that portrayal. Sounds very cool. Switching from TV to film, the big news of the year was the attention and praise that was heaped on Drive My Car. Now, this film is based on Haruki Murakami's short story that's part of a best-selling collection, Men Without Women. It was nominated for four Oscars this year, including the Best Picture, which was a first for a Japanese film. Ultimately, it won the Academy Award for Best International Feature. Yeah, about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> hmm, what, did, what did you think of the movie? Well, I was impressed that they managed to stretch out a short story into a three-hour-long film. <laughs> impressed or? <laughs> well, you know. Annoyed. <laughs> that seems to be the thing with films these days. Everything is three hours long. What is with that? I don't know. <laughs> is it necessary? I don't think so. I love when I look at a movie time and it's like 90 minutes and I'm like, yes. Yes. <laughs> this is how movies used to be. Yes. What stood out to me was the performances in sign language. I thought that was really compelling. The yes. actress who did that was, she did such a great job. And I was just kind She's of. She's also very beautiful. She is very beautiful. And I was mesmerized. That was my favorite part of the film. Hmm. Yeah. I thought that uh, also Hidetoshi Nishijima was great. I mean, he's just, his sad face. So good. Um, <laughs> There's a lot um, of sad faces lots in the film. Of, yeah. Can't actually remember that many of his happy faces (laughs) from the film. You know, I would watch those two smoke cigarettes Mm -hmm. for three hours. Well, speaking of attractive actors, (laughs) (laughs) Bullet Train (laughs) was just, it had a stacked cast. Um, Mm -hmm. Brad Pitt, Sandra Bullock, Joey King. Heard of them, yeah. Yeah, it's just a bunch of names that you've heard before. (laughs) And that film was actually, it's based on a book, a thriller, that was originally written in Japanese. Hi. There's a gun on It's the quiet car. Can't use your small inside voice in here, son. There's a gun.
The author is Kotaro Isaka, is that right? Kotaro Isaka, yeah, that's right. And funnily enough, the author has talked about the cast not being Japanese. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was kind of surprised that he was completely okay with it. He said himself, I didn't specify where these characters are from, really. So I'm, I'm happy to have an amazing Hollywood cast. <laughs> and was that an uncontroversial statement? <laughs> made waves so everyone was on board they were just like yeah everyone it's cool yeah. all right it's just it's yeah mm. i mean it got mixed reviews the oh, film okay. but it did really well at the box office mm. so two are there any books that you want to see adapted into a film or a tv show well speaking of psycho Murata, i mean mm. if anyone could ever adapt one of her works i mean earthlings which was translated into english a couple years ago and which is a super, super wild ride. Very, very Psycho Murata. I would be first in line. Yeah, that's going <laughs> to be a that. wild <laughs> adaptation. All right. We talked about how we introverted this year. <laughs> <laughs> we read books. We watched movies. How did we extrovert this year? Did you go see any music? I went out. <laughs> Did we party? We partied a little. We partied <laughs> on a very scaled down. <laughs> Still wearing masks, but you know. Mm. You went to Fuji Rock, right? I did. Oh, and it was wonderful. You've been, you've been before? I Yeah, I've been twice before um, in 2018 and 2019. Uh, 2019 was very memorable because there was a typhoon. <laughs> oh, right. I heard about that. Yeah. This year, the weather was great for the most part. And it just felt really nice to be outside enjoying something with <laughs> a lot of people yeah. again. I was really looking forward to watching Japanese breakfast perform. Mm. So I caught her show. And then I also was standing very close to her at a different act. Hi, this is Michelle from Japanese Breakfast. We are about to play our first uh, show at Fuji Rock on the green stage. Uh, and I'm so excited. I hope that our Japanese fans enjoy it and see you soon. And I, I like really, I thought about tapping her on the shoulder and telling her that I loved her memoir, mm -hmm. Crying in H Mart. <laughs> but I didn't I didn't have the guts to do it. So I missed that opportunity. I'm sure she could feel it. I'm just, just feel the way the you love danced <laughs> radiating from me. She's like, this girl's giving me I read your book vibes. Yeah. I'm sure she gets that a lot now. <laughs> um, was it like was the crowd much smaller than usual? I think so. Yeah. It felt it still felt a little bit strange um and tame-ish. Mm. Uh I'm used to seeing in the past, I feel like a lot of people dressed up for it with these crazy costumes and things like that. I didn't see that as much this year. So it did seem like a tamer version of Fuji Rock, but still it felt so good to be out there. And two, you went to Labyrinth, right? Yeah, Labyrinth is a lot less famous, but <laughs> it was the, the 20th anniversary. Um, it's a techno event and it's sort of, I would say, like techno for nerds. <laughs> I haven't been to like a full event before. And so I, I did get the sense that it wasn't, you know, at its capacity because it was, it was actually right before like the weekend, right before they opened the border fully again. So mm -hmm. I, I think it was really pared down, but just like you said, I mean, it was just so much fun to have, to be like surrounded by people and, you know, it's outside and something I like about music festivals here is that people bring their kids and you can see them, you know, walking around with these like massive, like sound blocking headphones on us. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was super fun to be part of a communal experience like that again. Mm -hmm. Well, like you mentioned, Japan's loosened its travel restrictions this year. 
And well, that didn't happen until October, but before that, you saw a lot of art festivals coming back, right? And you went to visit those? Yeah. So there were three triennales this year the Echigo Tsumari Triennale, which is in Niigata, the Aichi uh, Triennale, which is in Aichi, and the Setouji Triennale, which is in the Seto Inland Sea. And uh, yeah, I mean, what's really awesome about these like art events is that they have a lot of site-specific work. So, you know, the past couple of years, we've spent inside looking at our screens, having a very flat, glassy, you know, experience of the world. Everyone you talked to was like in a screen mm-hmm. um, and couldn't really touch each other. <laughs> like It was like scary to like breathe near other people. And, you know, these like really important ways of interacting with the world kind of became reduced to like, you know, pixels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what was really awesome was to be outside, <laughs> aside from the importance of seeing art, it's also really powerful to see art together, to watch other people um, watching art. It's It really is a communal experience. And so, you know, I think that art events will be really changed going forward. I mean, I don't think it feels as comfortable as it used to, but I do think people don't like this phrase, but we do sort of have to think about a new normal Mm -hmm. um, for entertainment and for live events. But you didn't just go to music festivals and art festivals this year, right? You also went to the Ghibli Park, which opened in IT in November. Yeah, that's right. The Ghibli Park was a huge deal because until now there's been only the Ghibli Museum dedicated mm-hmm. to the works of the you know Studio Ghibli, um, Hayao Miyazaki's studio. Mm-hmm. But yeah, people have been really, really excited. It's the first amusement park dedicated to the works of this studio, you know, obviously beloved films. Does it feel like an amusement park? <laughs> Great question. Um, it doesn't have rides and mm-hmm. it doesn't have like, you know, characters and costume and like fireworks and like splashing water and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's very tame. It's very quiet. I've heard it said that it's, you know, for vibes. Okay. So it's like walking through the world of Miyazaki. We have been waiting many years for today because today we are going to the brand new Ghibli Park here in Aichi, Japan. Yeah, actually. So one of the three areas that opened, there's going to be more later, but one of the three initial ones that opened um, is this house, which is supposed to be kind of a replica of the house from My Neighbor Totoro, the Mm -hmm. house of Satsuki and May, uh, which are the two daughters in the film, My Neighbor Totoro. And I really liked that space. I mean, it does sort of feel like walking through his world. You can touch everything. You can sort of mess around inside the space and like, you know, rifle through the drawers and stuff. And it's very charming and it feels, it feels like Miyazaki. And what I mean by that is like, you know, his worlds are like really handcrafted and um, cozy. I mean, there you know, there's these big fantasies, but they're also very cozy at the mm-hmm. same time. And that that house really did feel like it represented that. It's also a little bit away from the rest of the spaces, a little bit tucked, more tucked into nature. Um, so you do get that vibe. But the main space, which is the Grand Ghibli warehouse, it kind of did feel like a little bit of a miss. Um, mm-hmm. It's in this big, like glass, high ceilinged, conferency feeling space. It, it feels very cold. Just really didn't feel like Miyazaki. Um, I will say that one of the main features of this space, which I think will be really, really popular, is that the museum, the one that's in Tokyo, there's no photography allowed, and they're super, super strict about it. Right. And I think in the park, there's a whole section of the warehouse that's it's just for Instagram. Right. Like so you're <laughs> encouraged to take all the pictures. Exactly. You want. Yeah. There's like a what will be a really popular space is this, you can take a picture of yourself sitting next to No Face from Spirited Away, mm-hmm. just like Chihiro is 
sitting on the train at the end of the movie with no face. And I think that you can take your own photo of that. And I think that will be really, really popular. And I think that the gift store will also be really, (laughs) the gift shop will also be really popular. I did see that there was a little bit of controversy after it opened that strollers weren't allowed into the warehouse because they were worried about congestion. And I think the aisles might be too narrow. And there seemed to be some controversy around that. There's sort of, you know, obviously it's kids are a big audience for this park. So mm-hmm. it seems kind of hard on parents. All right. So we've talked about the year and culture. We've covered books, film, TV, music festivals, art festivals, and the Jubilee Park. So let's wrap up the conversation. <laughs> Two, do you have any end of year plans? Yeah, I've been away from my family for the end of the year since 2018. It's the first time to have Christmas with my family in a long time. So I'm really excited. That sounds nice. Yeah. What about you? Well, I'm going to spend time with my family as well. Also, I'm four books away from reaching my goal to read 50 books in 2022. So I want to settle in with a blanket and do nothing but read for a while. So one book I'm really looking forward to is The Thorn Puller by Hiromi Ito, which just came out this month. And I've been hearing a lot of positive things about it. Oh, yeah. I want to read that. Let me know how it is. Yeah. We'll, we'll have a little book club chat over it. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for joining me today, too. It was nice talking to you. It was super fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to our guest, Tu Hong Ha, for joining us on Deep Dive. We'll put links to her articles in the show notes. Elsewhere in the Japan Times, we're continuing our reviews of the year in culture. Roland Kelts will take a look at the year in anime, and Patrick St. Michel will tackle the year in music. Also, record snowfall hit Niigata Prefecture hard, causing the government there to request help from the self-defense forces after around 800 cars and trucks were stuck on a highway in Kashiwazaki as of 1am on Tuesday. The number was reduced to around 300 vehicles three hours later. Authorities made sure to distribute food, drinks, and blankets to those stuck in their cars. According to reports, two people have died as a result of the snow. So if you're on the Sea of Japan coast, be careful this weekend as officials have warned of more snow coming in. Music for Deep Dive is provided by Oscar Boyd. Happy holidays, Oscar. And for L, happy holidays, Kazuto. Production is by Dave Cortez. Dave, happy holidays. Thank you, Alyssa. Same to you. And Sean, happy holidays and all the best in 2023. Happy holidays, Alyssa. And happy holidays to my co-host, Jason Jenkins, who's back home in the States just now. We're all taking a much needed vacation and we'll be back with new shows starting from January 11th. Thanks very much to everyone who is listening. We here at Deep Dive wish you a happy and successful 2023. Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama.